Welcome to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday. Welcome to Soccer Morning here, brought to you by World Soccer Talk. Big Thursday edition of the program for you. Uh, very happy to be here. You know, uh, start you start your day at 10 o'clock. You start your work day at 10 o'clock. You really don't get to complain. Actually, no, that's not true. We do some behind-the-scenes stuff. So maybe I start my work day at 9 o'clock. <laughs> I don't really get to complain about early mornings and the like. I'm sure some of you get up epically early, especially on the West Coast, listen to this program. We thank you very much for doing so. Again, an excellent Thursday program for you. A couple of very good guests, our friend David Cartledge to talk some Spanish football will join us today. A couple of minutes. And then the return of James Montague. It's been a long time since James Montague was on this program. It may be, we may be going back to the summer. Trevor, is that right? Has it been this summer since James Montague has been on this program? If you don't know who James Montague is, you should. He is the author of When Friday Comes and 31 Nil, which is an excellent book about the minnows of world football. We're going to talk to James about some things happening in Egypt, bad things. Maybe bounce around the region a bit. He's in Belgrade at the moment. Maybe we'll just ask him how the weather is in Belgrade. It's just excellent to have James Montague back on the program. We've got headlines to do, and then after those two excellent guests, remember, phone lines will be open. You can jump in with your topics, whatever is top of mind for you, and we'll have the Twitter feed going all show at Soccer Morning. Hit us up there. Uh, Let's do the news and the headlines. Let's start with Grant Wall's report confirming that the 2022 World Cup in Qatar will be a winter tournament. Well, specifically a November-December tournament. I, I haven't done the uh, the research here, but what's the, the difference in average temperature, average daily temperature in Qatar, Qatar, whatever, from July to November? I'm sure there's some difference. I'm sure it's a, a difference of some import. But here we go. This seems to be a done deal. Grant Wall's uh, sources report that the idea is out there and that the, the executive committee will approve it, which is why the 2026 World Cup... Rights in the United States were practically handed to Fox and Telemundo, who also have the rights for 2018 and 2022. Those 2026 rights are a hedge against a, a, a lawsuit that may or may not have been filed, probably would have been filed by Fox or Telemundo, even if, even if they get better ratings in November and December, and I'm not sure that they will. There is a time difference. And that question over whether or not FIFA World Cup soccer is going to go up against the NFL or college football and, and be okay. I don't know if that's exactly the way it is. Again, eight hour, eight hour time difference between the United States and Qatar means that you're going to schedule games not in necessarily uh, windows taken up by American football. Champions League matches yesterday, two of them, Schalke falling 2 0 to Real Madrid in Germany. Cristiano Ronaldo, Marcelo, Marcelo, excuse me. And, and here's the thing about the um, the Cristiano Ronaldo goal. It's really good to see a guy who's had so much adversity recently, you know, come back around and, and score goals in the Champions. It's such a it's such a difficult thing to overcome all of that pressure he's under. Okay. Meanwhile, Basel and Porto. The game that I don't know that anybody really watched. I'm sure some people were split screening it a bit, but if you had your cho- for, if you only had one choice, you probably watched Schalke and Real Madrid. 
Basel and Porto played a 1-1 draw there in Switzerland. Luis Figo, who's running for FIFA president. Of course, you know that I believe that Blatter's going to win once again. But it's good to see somebody like, like Luis Figo with his playing history, the respect that he has to be running for FIFA president. And Luis Figo has a plan. He said he would he says he would consider expanding the World Cup if he was elected president in May. He says he would expand it from 32 to 40 teams or FIFA could stage two 24 team tournaments simultaneously on two continents followed by a knockout phase in one nation. That's just kind of crazy. I don't know. Let's put that to the people. Would you like two 24 team tournaments so group stages on two different continents with the advancing teams from those groups then playing the knockout rounds in one place it's sort of like two mini world cups and then a final knockout stage tournament world cup in figo's manifesto which was launched on thursday the portugal grade also proposes that one billion that's $1 billion of FIFA's $1.5 billion cash reserve be redistributed to the 209 national federations. He wants to take that nest egg that FIFA's built up through the World Cup, through holding the World Cup, and distribute it back. It's like a tax refund. So, uh, sort of like a, yeah, like, um, you know, we have a, um, what's the opposite of a deficit? We have so many deficits around here. A budget surplus. Every now and then, if you're lucky enough to live in one of these places where they can get their stuff together on occasion, there's a budget surplus, and some politician tries to engender a bunch of goodwill by saying, we're going to give that back to the people. Here's your 100 bucks or whatever. And everybody gets $100. Seems to be Luis Figo's plan here. Certainly more equitable than the hoarding of favor that Seb Blatter has done over the years by currying the votes of all of those tiny Caribbean nations. Some of the some of the Oceania and Asian Confederation nations by being by giving by giving money and favors to certain countries over other countries Sepp has maintained his power base apparently Luis Figo has no interest in doing that his quote any successful organization needs to, needs to have good people who are passionate about the game and want to do the best for fans that'd be nice wouldn't that be nice if we had a president who did those things that'd be lovely on the docket today, your your matches are Europa League matches. We discussed this yesterday. Hard to get excited for the Europa League for me. I know some people do. Hey, it's look, it's Thursday afternoon football for Americans. I'm not sure you can really argue with that. What games do we have on tap today, Trevor? What games are you looking forward to? Give me your top three right now. We got Wolfsburg and Lisbon, Sporting Lisbon, excuse me, Sporting. Young Boys in Everton. Liverpool Besiktas, Anderlecht, Dynamo Moscow, nice one, Celtic and Inter, Villarreal and uh, Red Bull Salzburg, or whatever they call that team. They don't call it Red Bull Salzburg, right? Tottenham and Fiorentina. There you go. That's the one that Trevor likes, Tottenham and Fiorentina. Harry Kane on fire. Ajax and uh, Ligia Warsaw. There's uh, another one. Travis, Travis, I can't say that one. I can't say Travis and Spore. Travis and Spore and Napoli. 
Sevilla and Gladbach. So there you go. You get some decent games here. Obviously, as we get down to the round of 32 in the Europa League, some of these teams are teams you'll recognize. Speaking of teams you don't recognize in parts of the world you don't recognize, our man James Montague goes to all of those places. He'll join us at 1030. But first up... Welcome back. Oh, that's the wrong button. First up, <laughs> David Cartledge will join us to talk some Spanish football. Real Madrid with a big win in the Champions League. Ronaldo gets it back together. Don't go anywhere. Soccer Morning brought to you by World Soccer Talk. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. We turn now to Spanish football, our friend David Cartledge. You can follow him on Twitter. David, J-A-C-A is his Twitter handle. David, how are you today? I'm very good, thank you, and I hope everybody listening in as well. Uh, they should be. Uh, plenty of football to talk about, the process to think about. Uh, let's start in the Champions League with uh, the Spanish representation, obviously Real Madrid yesterday in Germany to take on Schalke. Um, it, it was about as easy as you would expect, I suppose. I mean, look, Real Madrid has had some issues recently, and we've had Ronaldo under pressure. But to be honest, they were always going to take care of Schalke the way that they did. Oh, absolutely, yes. The, uh, it was just, they, they went out there and they got the job done. It wasn't emphatic. It wasn't poor. It was just a case of getting the job done and, and, and put, keeping the critics at bay. Uh, for, for a little while, and, and they did exactly that. Uh, speaking specifically of Ronaldo, again, I mean, it, 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 he has the birthday party, he has the, the, there's the chanting at Barcelona, which maybe we'll get to why <laughs> the LFP decides to uh, investigate these things, uh, but he has the chanting at Barcelona, there's a little bit of, of talk about his form dipping, and and really, what, he hadn't scored in three matches? Oh, no. Uh, oh, how terrible, David. And then he scores in this one. It, it was, look, it was a very, it was a pretty easy goal. Schalke switched off at the moment. But to see to see Ronaldo get back on the score sheet's got to be good for Real Madrid. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, last week he was he was finished and he was done as a footballer. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, it was good for him to get that goal. And I, I don't think, I think someone like Ronaldo, obviously, he takes it to heart when he doesn't score. You know, football is his life and he's, he's a very passionate player in the way he plays and he's so dedicated to the, to his job. Um, so it was obviously hurting him. So, but I, I, he knew he'd, that goal would eventually call Manchelotti, he knew, and his teammates would have knew as well. And, and all the critics would have knew that he was going to get that goal. So that's why I think they jumped on him, on him um, more than they would a normal player, because he isn't a normal player after all. And uh, yeah, he got his goal, and you know, who knows what? Next couple of weeks before he's firing, maybe five, six goals, and, and this three-game blip uh, will, will be completely forgotten. Yeah, you know, there's still a point up in the league. Uh, Barcelona's been on a, on a, on a rampant uh, run of form recently, and, and maybe there was some question of whether or not Real Madrid would get caught in the league. And, and they, they still could, I suppose, David. But, you know, the, the, the amount of panic when a big team takes a tiny little blip is never proportional to actually how, how badly they're playing. I mean, they're not playing badly. It's just a, maybe a matter of, of one or two bad results. And I suppose the loss to Atleti is, is the biggest issue here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Atleti loss almost, it was one game, but it almost felt like 
it was four games that they'd lost in a row because the manner of that defeat was just it, it was it was huge. It really was a, a big big win. I think a lot of the criticism that Real Madrid got was just after that game, but to blow it out of proportion to the extent that like they're in crisis as we've as Barcelona were earlier in the season. Like I left a tweet and I said. Um, Barcelona now the greatest team in the world after Real Madrid's brief spell is the greatest team in the world who are now the crisis club and that's how things change and it's one it's one defeat it's one even a draw and it gets blown out of proportion terribly and it just goes to show how good these teams are and and the level uh, that they play at that one little blip be it a draw or a loss gets magnified a hundred times absolutely um and and you know, look, we've got Real Madrid getting right maybe in the Champions League, and we'll see what happens in in the league itself. Barcelona, one point back. I, I mentioned Atleti, and I mentioned them beating Real Madrid and, and emphatically doing so, but they lost to Celta Vigo on the weekend, and that may be it for their title shot in 2015, do you think, David? It's the lines are so so fine in the Liga right now. That six points is just it's it's a huge huge gap for anybody to come back from. Um, and I mean, the still you know you have to hope that somebody else slips up. And in this season, fortunately, I mean, Aleti will look to the fact that teams they they have slipped up. I mean, nobody expected Aleti to slip up where they did. Nobody expected the Barcelona to slip up when they did. And things like that, and Real Madrid to slip up. And and that's how it works. So they'll be now they're hoping that this is the worst thing. To have to hope for the other team to slip up, it's not in your own hands anymore. And Aleti were last season; they had it in their own hands, and they just knew as long as they kept playing, as long as they stayed competitive, that they'd get the job done, and, and the title would be theirs. But now it's out of their hands, and the other teams have, have got to mess up for Aleti to come back. So it'll be interesting to see how how their what their focus is. Who knows? They may even put all their attention on the Champions League right now and just hope for the best in the league. Well, look, Diego and, and Atleti crashing the party last year was fun while it lasted, but it's uh, it doesn't seem that might that's going to be the case this season. We'll get back to a Real Madrid or Barcelona winner. Um, the question now is is whether or not one of these Spanish clubs can go and win the Champions League. Uh, you mentioned Atleti. Obviously, Atleti and Barcelona playing next week in their the first leg of their round of sixteen matchups. Um, just br- briefly, and I'm sure we can talk. You know, we may be able to talk to you ahead of those matches, David. But from what you see here, are those teams? lined up well against uh, uh, Manchester City and, and Bayer Leverkusen, respectively? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think the Spanish teams are in a, in, a, in a very good position for it. And I think as well, uh, I think Barcelona will maybe feel they now, with their blip behind them, they can, they can carry on and they can finish the season extremely strongly. Um, and, now, and like we said about Aleti, maybe they feel the league has gone somewhat. So they'll maybe focus that extra bit of attention on on the trophy that evaded them last year, which was the the Champions League, and then of course Real Madrid, who the demands are so high, they have to compete in in, in every competition 110. percent So yeah, I think that's lined up really, really well for the Spanish sides, and we could see a bit of dominance when it comes to the semi-finals. Who knows, you know? You do have also have Spanish sides in the Europa League, and I, I sort of ran through some games today. Obviously, um, you have Athletic Bilbao in that tournament, Sevilla's in that tournament, Villarreal's in that tournament. You are in, in Sevilla ahead of that match. Um, give us a, a bit of a preview. Yeah, of course. Yes, um, well, Sevilla, they're doing well in the, in, the, in La Liga, and they're also doing well in the Europa League as well. And, and of course, they're the holders, so... There's a bit of pressure on them to to retain that trophy, and 
they've not got we talked about an ideal draw in the Champions League for Atleti and people like that well this isn't the ideal draw for, for Sevilla at all they, they, are, they are very concerned about this one the journalists in the city and I think the players know how much of a game this will be Borussia Mönchengladbach very very exciting team in Germany some fantastic players a bit of a Spanish touch as well as Alvaro Dominguez there who used to play for Atleti and they play in a way that could really really hurt Seville they, they, the way they are set up they're very tactically clever they, they hit teams on the break they've got lots of taste they've got lots of flair and they could really really trouble Sevilla obviously Sevilla feel they could do the same to Borussia Mönchengladbach but there is, there is I'm quite surprised at the amount of concern from, from inside Seville about, about this game uh, elsewhere in La Liga, the, the other teams in this competition, any any of these matchups of major concern, or uh, would you have the Spanish sides as favorites in most of them? Again, uh, Athletic Bilbao has Torino, um, uh, just Villarreal has Red Bull Salzburg. You wouldn't necessarily think that either one of those would be a major threat, would you? Um, no, absolutely not. I mean, the only factors are that Villarreal have, uh, have mounted up a few injuries. They're missing Bruno Soriano, who will be off for, I think it's about two or three months. He's the, the captain, their leader. Gabriel Paulista went to Arsenal. So that's two key players from the first half of the season when they were so strong that they've now gone. And that could hurt them. And the signs are that is hurting them. So that will be interesting. And then Red Bull Salzburg have got the excellent Jonathan Soriano who just kind of seemed to stop scoring in any competition he plays in. So that's a tricky one. And with Athletic Bilbao, I think their own form has been... They're not at the level of last season, as we've discussed on the show before. So... That is the the factor that could maybe make them slip up, but it's definitely severe. I think with the with the trickiest tie out of the three teams in the Europa League. At, at this point, um, again, the, the we've just had a, a new television contract go through. Uh, television rights being sold by the Premier League in England, David. I'm sure you know about uh, the riches that the Premier League brings in. And as part of that discussion, there was again sort of. Uh, Here's how the breakouts in various leagues are between teams. And, and the English teams, even at the bottom of the table, even even relegation-threatened teams are making as much as, as clubs like Bayern Munich. Um, so not only is the Premier League rich, but we then we see the, the graphic again that shows how much more in the disparity in the TV money between Real Madrid and Barcelona and everybody else in La Liga. And I, I did read that there was a, another push to get some, some legis- legislation through to try to get some equitable split in the TV money. Is, is there any movement on that whatsoever? Is that once again going to stall? I mean, you know, there's definitely been a lot more movement than there ever has been, and, and there is a new deal, deal going to be coming through. But if people, I mean, the Spaniards, President Colette, he's, he's speaking out strongly against it, and he's urging the other clubs not to agree to this. And there's, there's only a few teams not really wanting to play a ball, and they say, and we want more. And, and I completely understand it because, I don't know, some people, uh, the people there, left, the people like Tebas, who, who's the league chief, he's saying, look, this is a good deal. Look, we're finally changing things, but mm, it is not really that much change. It's just a little bit of change. It's a tiny, it's not going to make any difference. I, I'm, I'm in the counter, I think, uh, uh, that, I'm a bit of a pessimist here. I think the damage has already been done to Spanish football in terms of this TV contract. It's gone on for too long. So, I mean, there will be a change coming in, I think. I think everybody's going to end up agreeing to it. But for me, it will not make a, a, a tiny amount of difference, I don't think. And so what are we what are we talking about then? I mean, again, you know, we could go into the to the future and, and wonder about a super a European Super League again, David. We can certainly talk about whether or not an entrenched and and uh, you know uh, entrenched Real Madrid Barcelona with all of the advantage that they've always had 
will just continue to dominate the league, and, and no one's ever going to really make a, a, a dent. I mean, and that Letty can pop up every now and then, but are we just going to, you know, status quo just going to hold on? I mean, even if there's a new deal and, and there's some sharing of revenue, you just expect this to, to, to go on as it's always gone on? Oh, yeah, definitely. We're comp- uh, 100%. Everything has come too late. So I think for figure, figure one is the fact that it's come too late. Um, and B, is there, it, it isn't enough. The, the changes that they are willing to make, it, it isn't enough. The, the money that, say, Valencia and LA are going to get extra isn't going to be enough. It isn't going to close any gap any further. It might make things a little bit easier in terms of they might be able to offer a player a little bit extra more money um, for, his, for his new contract. If, if Athletic need to offer Munayin a new contract, they can offer him a little bit extra money. Okay. But in the long run, it isn't going to make any difference. It isn't going to mean that Athletic are going to be at the top of the market competing for James Rodriguez when he came available. You know, it wouldn't, make, it wouldn't change anything like that. So, no, I really, really don't see anything, any change. It needs to be a, it needs to be a radical change before yeah. anything um, occurs, and it's, it's nowhere near that. So you, ne- you don't ever see foresee the possibility of Spain adjusting to the point where they can get closer to what England has? I mean, that, that's obviously the extreme. I mean, you know, you look at, again, Swansea's getting 35 million uh, euros out of their contract, out of their TV deals, out of their TV appearances, and, and meanwhile, Ibar and Raya Vallecano and... Uh, and all of these clubs are, are getting a fraction of that. Um, you don't ever see them getting close. No, definitely not. Uh, I think Aleti will maybe get the odd transfer through. They're like, oh, that's a, that's a great deal, and they'll spend a little bit of money. But I don't think they'll get that close. And as for the other teams, the Rayos and the, the Ibas and the Deportivo La Coruñas, my God, they will they will never be anywhere near. Um, unless they'd have to, like I say, it has to be a radical change um, to balance it all out across the board. But there is no indication that they will ever do that because. The people who are running Spanish football want Real Madrid and Barcelona to compete in Europe with the big teams like Bayern, with Chelsea, Man City, the people with lots of money. So they're going to keep giving vast sums of money to Barcelona and Real Madrid so they can compete there. And everybody else, they don't care about. Well, and, 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 and they are sort of propped up by the fact that Spanish football is in such a wonderful period of success and, and, and there's so much talent there and the, the academies are churning out players that you can have an Atleti going to the final against Real Madrid, and that makes Spanish football look good while there is still all of that discrepancy in the way that the money is, is divvied out. No, absolutely. The Spanish football on the surface looks wonderful. It looks the greatest thing in the world. You know, you've got lovely sunny weather shining down on the stadiums and some wonderful players coming. You know, you've got Suarez coming. Who knows some, Who knows who will come next? Royos, Hummel, somebody like that. Another top world star will come and everything looks good. Spain might get a new batch of talent through and, and dominate again. And it looks good, but at the end of the day, there's no money for 18 other clubs in the, in the league. The stadiums are empty. The ticket prices are outrageous. The, the organization from week to week in terms of organizing the fixtures is terrible. Kickoff times out of hand. Fans are becoming more disassociated with the game itself. And it's it's in a terrible, terrible state. But again, on the outset, it looks very, very good. But it, it isn't. That isn't the picture. Is there is there a chance that the new uh, TV sharing, whatever it is, whatever little bit it does give to some of these other clubs, will at least help some of those clubs either stay out of of the level of debt that that they've taken on, or at least you know guarantee some solvency for the future? I mean, that that would be the bottom, the the minimum. Uh, needed just just make sure that these clubs are are able to uh, to continue to operate that they're not going to be saddled with debt for the next twenty five years. No, absolutely, because there's too many 
historical Spanish clubs that have that have gone to the wall because they couldn't survive. So they don't exi- they don't even exist anymore. Teams don't even exist. So yes, it will help teams pay their wages um, and their and their costs to pay the tea lady, the groundsman, things like that. And that and that's cost. That's important. So it will help them do that. Um, we're any more than that? No. But yeah, of course, it's it's nice that they're getting a bit of extra money. Okay, they're not going to turn down a little bit of extra money. Sure. So that will be nice. And of course, there's responsibility for them as well. They need to run their own clubs properly. Yes. This isn't it isn't just a TV deal, TV deal that has caused a problem in Spain. There's some bad chairmen, there's bad owners, and they've they've lived beyond their means basically. So there needs to be a bit of austerity, a bit of sense from from owners and chairmen as well. It, the blame isn't completely on the TV deal. All right, uh, David, explain to me why, and, and look, I, I'm not inside of Spanish football. I know there have been issues in Spanish football, and you nip things in the bud. But explain to me why it's worth investigation and potentially punishment for Barcelona that their fans were chanting, Ronaldo is a drunk, or Cristiano is a drunk. Yeah, of course, yeah, absolutely, yes. Um, it's ever since um, the incident with uh, Letty and uh, the Depor fans, when uh, when the fat, when the Depor fan when he died, um, people remember that. And uh, during that game, after that, there has been an escalation of, of security um, within stadiums, outside of them, and thing. But, but typically with Spain, things haven't gone to plan. It hasn't worked out quite right because. Again, the fans are becoming more outcasted from stadiums. You are entering a stadium with a particular scarf with the name of the ultra group on. So say if you were an 18-year-old kid and you just want to have the scarf of these ultras, you know, you, you look up at them and you see them as loud fans and you think, great. They are getting scarves removed and they, they are getting made to stand outside the stadiums and getting searched. And it's becoming crazy like that in terms of for the fans and then with the chance as well everybody knows what sort of chance goes on at games i mean we're not talking racist chance here or anything like that we're just talking insults um you know like people are saying um, f another team and and that is getting they're the teams in the trouble and the fans in the trouble as well so it's getting a, a little bit out of hand they're not they're, they're missing the actual point you know i mean you can't cut down every chance if somebody's going to chant that about cristiano Okay, it's not very nice, you know. He, he, we know, about, I think we know about his father with his problem as alcohol, alcoholism and things like that. So it's not nice, but I don't think anybody needs to be punished for it. This happens. This is fan culture. You can't, you can't change that. That won't change. Very interesting, David. Uh, David Cartlidge joining us, talking La Liga. Follow him on Twitter, David J A C A. Uh, David, appreciate your time and your insight as always. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Nice as always. Let's take a break. When we come back, James Montague will join us. We'll talk a little Egyptian um, turmoil again. Some trouble there. Middle Eastern soccer, Asian soccer, whatever else is on James's mind. Don't go anywhere. Soccer Morning, brought to you by World Soccer Talk. I turn my camera on. I cut my fingers on. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we go, back on Soccer Morning, brought to you by World Soccer Talk. Very happy to have on the phone line from Belgrade, James Montague, author of When Friday Comes and uh, 31 Nil, both books you should absolutely pick up, wonderful football books about maybe places you don't read about very often. James, how are you, sir? 
How are you doing? And it's lovely to be back. Where have you been it's, all this time? I haven't heard from you for a while. Uh, it's I feel been, like a uh, jilted ex-girlfriend. I, I think you've been very busy. You are a <laughs> globe-trotting reporter, writer extraordinaire, and uh, I, I don't know. Life has been in the way. We've, uh, but it's, we're back together. It's here. The reunion is we are back. Uh, James, tighter than ever. Yes, absolutely. The, the The original thought about having you on was to talk about Egypt. We're going to talk some other things, but you know, with the with the Port Said incident, um, the obviously the Arab Spring and and everything, the Re- Egyptian Revolution and and everything that's gone on in that part of the world over the last couple mm-hmm. of years, I don't know that anybody thought that things were going to be okay or that football would never be touched again by that violence but we just had another uh, another instance of police clashing with supporters and and people dying and 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 i um you know just give me your thoughts on on the the again the collision of of football and and politics and and the turmoil that that egypt is continuing to go through yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people would have would have seen the news, and it was, it was rolling a lot on CNN, and and even the numbers of people that were killed are quite confusing. At first, they said it was nineteen, then twenty, then twenty-two people. Um, Ultras White Knights, which are the ultra groups of Zamalek, which for those people who might not know a lot about Egyptian football, the two biggest teams in Egypt are Al Ali and, and Zamalek, and they're the two teams in Cairo, and there's a big rivalry between the two. And during the revolution, both sets of fans had ultras groups. So I'd, I'd met in two thousand seven when there were very much fan groups under Mubarak, uh, President Mubarak, former president was deposed in the, in the January 25th revolution. And these guys, you know, started off ultra groups based on, you know, like Italian or British or English kind of football uh, crews. And they were very much about football and supporting. It was very much about, for Ali fans and for Zamalek fans, it was the hatred of the other team in Cairo. Um, but what's, what's fascinating is that when I saw them in 2007, it was very much about football. And within the, a few years, it turned into something very political because, you know, every match, these guys were dealing with the police. And I'd been in the post-episode pre-revolution in Egypt, and the police were, you know, I mean, they were, you know, they were out of control. You know, you pick, they were, it, was, it was a police state. You'd go to a match. I mean, I've, I've had a couple of batons over my shoulders from police you know, just demanding IDs, you know, acting with absolute impunity. And what happened is that these fans then started really fighting the police rather than rather than each other. And it became something very anti-authoritarian. It became something very um, anti-police and then by extension anti-regime. And suddenly you had tens of thousands of young men singing songs against the police, songs against the regime, you know, and the football stadiums really became you know, an area of public space that was uncontrollable. And, and in Egypt and in much of the Middle East, you know, there are only really two spaces in authoritarian countries where you can get large groups of people where, that, that can express ideas and, and really curse and cuss what's going on. And that's in the mosque and that's in the, on the football terraces. So these guys really, you know, they, they did play a, a kind of fundamental role, I think, in the, in, in the revolution itself. They're talked about as guardians and gatekeepers and protectors of the revolution. And after the revolution, these guys were revered. You know, these, they, they were really exalted in, in, in polite society as well as, uh, you know, amongst themselves and amongst other ultras around the world. But as the revolutionary kind of aims have suddenly started to, 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 to disintegrate and pull away, you know, you've had the demonization of the ultras. And then you obviously had Port Said in February the 1st in 2012 where 72 fans, Ali fans, were killed. Um, you know, and I've, 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 I'm friends with a lot of these guys. I've gone and seen them in Egypt, and I was there afterwards as well, spending time with them. And there is no doubt in their mind that the reason for that tragedy 
was one of revenge, one of the regime punishing the ultras and the police punishing the ultras for, for their role in the revolution. And now there's been a long court case about that, and it's been a long, uh, people have been sentenced to death, and I was there in 2013 with the ultras, and there were 15,000 waiting for this. Um, the sentence was to be announced from the court case, and it was mainly Al-Mazri fans that were found guilty, but also uh, the police, the man who's head of uh, security at Port Said, and there was just too many things to say that this was just fan violence. And even Bob Bradley, you know, who spent a lot of time there with the Egyptian national team, and I spent a lot of time with him as well, you know, he was very sceptical, he read a lot, he was very sceptical of what, what the authorities were saying about this. So there's always been a hint that there's been some, um, you know, I mean, you know, there's always conspiracy theories in Egypt, but there is, there is something deeper to this than fan violence. And really, as uh, you know, you, you had President Morsi, who's, who's deposed essentially, President Sisi coming in, the military regaining its control. It's also about regaining control of the ultras, who's kind of this out of control element of civil society. And, um, you know, and then really, you've got now the, the president of, of Zamalek, who has, he's a Sisi supporter, and for months been calling, you know, the ultras white knights. Uh, terrorists and Muslim Brotherhood sympathizers and trying basically anybody who protests or has any uh, problem with the regime be lumped into this group of, of, of kind of awkward squad of um, you know, people who kind of want to, want to bring down the regime. So when this happened um, last week when let's say 22 people were killed, straight away the same thing happened as, as it did in Hillsborough as well by the way which was blaming the fans right. blaming ticketless fans as they tried to get into the ground and you know it's, it's, you go on YouTube and straight away you see that those fans have been penned into, into a barbed wire cage essentially and the, the police are fine tear gas into it I mean it's a disgrace it's an absolute disgrace that anybody in the Egyptian authorities can suggest with this footage that this was something to do with the fans this is something to do, whether it's conspiracy or not, it's too early to say, I, I, can't, I don't know. But what I do know is that there was such a lack of regard for people's safety and for their lives and for what would happen if you did that, that, that they, it's essentially a death sentence as soon as you, as soon as you throw a, a gas canister. And I've, I can see a gas canister, and I can tell you, it's not a pleasant experience. Yeah. And if you put it where you've got so many people crammed into space, then, you know, it's essentially murder. And it, it, it's a disgrace what's happened. And, and it's a disgrace what, what really is happening with the club as well. I mean, Zamalek, lots of people have been saying how sad that they are and that, you know, these guys are martyrs or whatever. But then you've got, um, you know, Omar Gabber, one of the players, who refused to play when he heard what's going on. And rather than saying that this guy is a hero or saying, you know, we understand, much like many of the players at Al-Ali, uh, like, you know, uh, refused to play, uh, like Mohammed Abu Treka, until there'd been some kind of uh, justice for their fans. Right. <laughs> the, the alternative is that the president of uh, Zamalek, you know, once this guy fired, you know, he's, he's suspended him, you know, he's done something wrong, whereas, you know, I think any, any other club in world football would understand that what he did was absolutely correct. So it's really, you know, when you look at what's happening there, you know, the revolution is getting further and further away from its original ideals and, and the ultras, I think, are paying the price for being, you know, I guess, so successful in what it is that they kind of accidentally stumbled across in the first place. You know, it's, it's, it's just uh, it's one of those things. It's troubling as um, someone who lives in the United States where I have the, uh, the privilege of being able to watch my sports and watch my soccer, my football, without having to worry about whether it's ever going to be politicized. Uh, it's just never going to happen. It's never going to be an issue for me. And 
in this case, you mentioned Abu, Abu Treka, who I believe was being pushed pulled between various factions back, you know, after yeah. Port Said, and refused to sort of align himself. And look, you you can't you can't separate the unfortunately you can't separate the football from the politics. Is is Egypt ever going to be able to to do something like that? And you know, in that part of the world in general, and and we'll get to Palestine and their national team in a, in a bit here. Is there ever going to be a chance to separate? the politics from the footballers, they're just going to be inextricably linked forever. Well, I mean, I, I think that what happens in, in an authoritarian regime, it creates these, you know, people want freedom of expression and people want to be able to organize and to be able to feel that their voice is being heard. And what happened in Egypt is, is very unusual. I don't think we've ever seen anything where fans have had played such an integral role in a revolution. So if you, if you basically stymie stifle public space, it comes out somewhere like a weed in the crack of a pavement. And, and this is what's happened here. It just happened to be football. It could have been in another set of circumstances. It could have been musicians or artists or some other kind of form of public space, but it wasn't. In this case, it was football. And so it's not that we should decouple football from politics. I think it's very important. And why not? Why not? Yeah. I mean, it's such a, it's such a huge social, um, you know, area of our lives that touches so many people. Why not be political? It's not an issue of of, of, of decoupling the politics from the, from the from the supporters. It's about stopping essentially a counter revolutionary movement from destroying the fans that have made the game so special in sure. Egypt. And you know, it's still one of the best places in the world. It's, 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 you know, like, no, I lie. It's the best place in the world I've ever gone to watch a football match. Yeah. I've never met more you know, passionate, uh, intelligent, you know, uh, just spot on people in my life that have an Egyptian football matches. It's absolutely brilliant. And, you know, really in the aftermath, and I was there in 2011 after the revolution in Tahrir Square, and I, and I felt that, that optimism that they were involved in and, and the optimism of being, of doing something correctly and doing something right. And I think everybody should be very proud, not just Egyptian fans, not just football fans, but anybody that's interested in freedom, but not just be very proud of, of, of what they're doing. And it's so sad to see the clawback from the state and, and, and these young men, you know, who, are, you know, are dying now, now in their hundreds. And, yeah. and you've got to remember, it's not just football fans. I mean, there's, there's, there's been thousands, sure. hundreds, um, if not thousands of people shot and killed at protests for being activists, for being um, uh, pro-Morsi or members of the Muslim Brotherhood or even Muslim Brotherhood supporters. And so they are just one part of the revolutionary makeup you know, that was useful in overthrowing Mubarak and now gradually being clawed back by by the army and Sisi and it's it's just it's just you know, it's hor- it's horrible to see and, and I mean like, even as a journalist I mean I've I've travelled back and forth to Egypt many times and I'm going you know, I'm not sure whether to go back this time. I'm I'm thinking I'm gonna go back but when you see what happened to the Al Jazeera journalists, it's very easy um for them to be, you know, <laughs> to be put into, into prison and told that they were traitors and, and, sure. and all this. You know, it, the, the country I left is not the country that I would go back to. And, um, you know, so it's, just, it's just a real shame. You know, they're talking about the football being uh, kind of returning uh, next week because a lot of clubs will go to the wall if they don't restart football. They've had two seasons cancelled out of the past three, I think it is. And um, but the fans won't be allowed. They've only just been allowed back in anyway. Um, and if... You know, I think the regime knows if they keep the stadiums empty for long enough, then it's a way of killing, you know, this this area of yeah. society that they can't control in their system. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I certainly don't want to make a distinction between the lives lost at a football match and any other lives lost. It's a tragedy either, either no, way. Yeah, you know, of course. But we talk, you know, this is, you know, this is a very unique thing. This is our world. And, and to see nobody should ever go 
to a football match and not come back. Sure, you know, absolutely. it should never, it should never what? ever be that. So you can only really change or talk about the things that are in front of us. And for us, that's football. And for me, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly proud to say that I've met a lot of the guys who, who really, you know, played a really important role in something that was, that, you know, really was important. Yeah, and yeah, um, yeah. and it's, it's just, it's just, a, it's just a tragedy to see what, what's going on there at the moment. Really, it's a tragedy. You want the game to be a source of hope and a, and a release maybe from some of those other concerns, but at the same time, you're right. If this is the option, is if this is the outlet that they can use to affect the change or to, to make their voices heard, if that's only the, one of the only places they can do that, then they absolutely should. I'm going to turn mm-hmm. us away from, from Egypt, James, while I have you here, because you've also uh, written and, and, and followed the uh, story of the Palestine national team. Um, you know, and this is, I don't know if this is the opposite end of the spectrum per se, but it certainly is, you know, an element of hope, an element of identity for, for Palestine to have a national team that, that goes and represents um, an area of the world that is not recognized as a, as a sovereign nation by most places, uh, by, by most other countries. FIFA does recognize their, their right to be a, a national team representative, uh, representing the area. So what, is, uh, what does the Palestine national team mean to that, to that region? Well, I mean, it's, it's incredibly important. I mean, you've got, and this is, I mean, it's not often that you'll hear many people praising Seb Blatter, but Seb Blatter was at the controls when, um, in 1998, Palestine was first recognized. Uh, you know, he landed with, along with Jerome Champagne, the, was a prospective candidate for, for the presidency, but didn't get the required nominations, but landed with him at the Rafa airstrip and was greeted as hero, which kind of explains, I think, some of his popularity in Africa and, and the Middle East, you know, which we, mainly in Europe and America, that we don't necessarily see. But when Palestine was recognized, it was a huge issue because so few international bodies recognize an entity called Palestine. Um, and so them going and playing international fixtures where they have a flag, an anthem, uh, they have the word, pa- even having the word Palestine and not occupied territories or the Palestinian territory, but the word Palestine itself is a huge psychological issue, and it's taken very, very seriously within the West Bank and within Gaza. And you can tell that by looking at the, the kind of people that are involved in the organisation of football. And at the, at the top, you have Jibril Rajoub, who's the head of the FA, who is one of the highest-ranked uh, members of FATA, which is the kind of the, the secular nationalist um, Palestinian group um, faction of, of Yasser Arafat. You know, and this, this, so these are these are heavyweight political guys. This guy was the, the West Bank security advisor to Arafat. You know, known to be the kind of guy that to bash heads together, you know, he's kind of a fearsome character, and he's involved, not just with the, um, the football, but also with the Olympic Committee. So they see, you know, and I spoke to Sam Fyde, a former a prime minister, who said, you know, this is how important, this is important, this is important in the building of a nation to have these kind of elements um, put on the international, international stage. And, and recently I was in Kosovo, and the Kosovo uh, Deputy Foreign Minister told me the same thing when, when uh, the IOC recognised them recently. This is almost as important as being recognized by the UN because more people will see it. There's a greater um, visibility to yeah. see membership than, say, the dry political membership of, of the UN. So, or maybe not the UN, but certainly other international political bodies. So it's incredibly important. So when they qualified for the Asia Cup, uh, which just took place in Australia in January, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was the biggest event in, in Palestinian football. And you've got to remember that when I, I first went there in 2006, and I went to the West Bank, and there was huge movement restrictions from the Israelis that made league play almost impossible. So there's a cup game. I remember going to the Jericho International Stadium, which was basically rubble, you know. And the referee turns up, I think, half an hour late, because 
you know, he got caught at a checkpoint. And so you couldn't ever organize a league because the checkpoints made that impossible. So it was just this haphazard amateur league. And then since getting recognition and since building on that and getting funds in, they've organized a, a professional league. So they have a fully professional league where they pay wages comparable with the Israelis, um, you know, which is incredible. And then they have the, the World Cup qualification campaigns. They qualify for the Asian Cup. They have a women's league. They have a women's national team. But, wow. you know, in many cases, get more fans turning up than you get towards the England women's national team turn up. So, so there's been some incredible developments. And, you know, not much has moved politically or economically uh, for the Palestinians in the past 10 years. But this is one area they could be rightly proud of. And that's why it seems so important, not just for, for Palestinians, but... Uh, for Arabs around the world, the, the, the national football team really—it really is a—is a symbol for hope. Um, it's a shame they didn't do any better. I think they had a good chance against uh, Jordan, but they, for some reason, fired their coach uh, Jamal Mahmoud before the before the game and he uh, before, the, before the game before the tournament. And he, I just, you know, he he had the team set up in a very good way. And they had a couple of great results. They'd won the Challenge Cup to get there and replaced him with a kind of technical director of the FA who had no real experience in this area. And, you know, you can see the, the team was disjointed. There's a like, team looked unhappy. Um, you know, and they had a good chance getting out of that group. And, and in the end, they ended up losing all three games. But they did, they, they did score. And that was, you know, at least one thing. Well, I, you know, sometimes, and, we, and you've written a book on minnows, so you know how this goes, James. Sometimes just being there, just being, just representing your people on the international stage in the world's most popular sport is is the victory. Uh, but at the same time, if you think you can advance, if you if you hope you actually have a chance, then maybe you're, there's some disappointment as well. Did they under... You know, did they did they underachieve? I think so. I mean, I think a lot of uh, uh, and you should follow. I think Football Palestine on Twitter, the account is a really great guy who who writes a, a really great Twitter account and blog on on Palestinian football. You know, and he's very disappointed, very angry with the Palestinian FA, very angry with Jibru Ajub. You know, they made mistakes and and you know that they they thought it was good enough to be there when actually they had a chance to get out of a group. I mean, Jordan. Jordan is, you know, has, has a majority, and it's something that's not really talked about in Jordan, but has a majority kind of Palestinian population um, due to all the kind of uh, movements of people over the past few years. So they have, they know each other intimately. They played their yeah. first ever home international game in the West Bank against Jordan. They know that team. A lot of their players play for Wasat, which is one of, which is the Palestinian team in the Jordanian league. They know each other intimately. And, you know, they had Ray Wilkins, you know, former international, who's their coach, who, who really... I don't think he'd won a game at that point. Um, <laughs> you know, he'd, he'd had a, he had a terrible record. And you had, you had a Palestinian team that, you know, had qualified, had beaten teams around it, had, I think they drew with China. They had some, you know, there was, there was some real hope and optimism, some, some really good players coming through. And then you have, uh, you know, Omar Jaroun, for instance, and it's so shaky at the back. And, and you had a player like Omar Jaroun, who I'm sure your readers have read about in the past, um, from Peachtree, Georgia. Yeah. You know, grew up in uh, Georgia. I think he plays for the Ottawa Whitecaps. No, it's Vancouver Whitecaps. There's a team in Ottawa. The Ottawa, I can't remember anyway. They're in the second division somewhere. But um, a team in Ottawa that he's playing for. You know, but I've seen him play. And he is a, he's a real solid uh, centre-back. I saw him play during their World Cup qualification campaign. Um, you know, him now, the guy at the back would have been fantastic. Maybe not the quickest, but they would have been great. And for some reason, he was cut from the squad, apparently because he couldn't make one warm-up game. 
And you think mistakes like that, you know, they really did have a chance, I think, against the poor Jordan side, probably an Iraq side, you know, that really only came into itself later on in the tournament. Um, you know, and obviously Japan, <laughs> Japan, you know, the Asian champions, so they weren't expected to win that anyway. But four points from those three, from those three games would have been enough. So I think, you know, a lot of Palestinians quite disappointed um, and, and actually should have taken it further than just saying we are there. And it was important and it was a huge thing to have a Palestinian flag there and to have the main Palestine there. But equally, you know, they would have, um, you know, it, I, I, I can't imagine that they'll ever have a better chance to progress in an international competition than they had then. Yeah. Uh, tough go of it for Palestine, but uh, I'm sure they'll be uh, pushing forward. James Montague, currently in Belgrade. Follow him on Twitter. It's James P-I-O-T-R, James Peter. Thank you for, thank you for your time, and thanks uh, for the return to the show, James. Hopefully we can track you down in the near future. Yeah, don't leave it too long next time, yeah? Uh, we won't. We definitely won't. Uh, <laughs> make sure you go and pick up James's books uh, when Friday comes. Certainly 31-0, which I have a copy of and enjoy very much. Thank you for... Uh, Thank you for the time, James. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll open up the phone lines, 347-756-6276, and hit us with tweets as well, at Soccer Morning. Be right back. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we go. It's the open phone line segment of the program, 347-756-6276. And I have a call on the line, Shane, from up in Connecticut. I think he wants to talk Spurs. Or you want to talk... Spurs and uh, what? Where they usually finish? <laughs> Is that what I'm getting? Yeah, yeah. So I'm online, correct? Yes, you are. What's up? All right, great. Sorry about that. That doesn't make good radio. But um, yeah, Jason. So uh, yeah, I'm president of New Haven Spurs. But I have these Twitter conversations or arguments with uh, fellow uh, fellow Spurs about the concept of how we're going to get into the Champions League and the the two of the best probabilities because. Obviously, we're not going to win the league. We're not going to finish second. We're not, you know, we'd like to finish third, but money, money talks with uh, the English league. So that's not quite the possibility. So our highest probability of getting to the Champions League is one of two methods. Um, one, finish fourth. That's still a qualification place, so we still do need to play home and away to actually get into the Champions League. Or finish fifth or sixth or seventh, but concentrate on the Europa League, win the Europa League, and gain, I'm pretty sure, automatic qualification without the uh, qualification. It's automatic qualification into the next year's Champions League. And so the debate that I think happens in some circles, I, but I, I can't understand it, is the idea where which would you rather do? Would you rather finish fourth and have to qualify, but you finish fourth? Fourth is not a trophy. It doesn't win anything. It's just simply arbitrary number that uh, UEFA puts onto. Uh, the English league through the the qualification process, uh, top four going to the Champions League, good. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Or, or win a cup, a European cup, uh-huh. and automatically qualify for the Champions League, regardless of where we finish. You but know, most likely fifth or sixth. Uh, Shane, I think that that normally, 
for most teams, for most clubs, for most fans, you get the trophy. You want to go get the trophy. You want something to be to put in your case to show off. I don't care if it's Europa League, Cup Winners Cup, Inter Toto Cup, uh, whatever the the whatever Nottingham Forest was winning back. It doesn't matter. You want that yeah. trophy. Now I agree, but 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 <laughs> but you are a Spurs fan. This is Spurs we're talking about, and All right. it, more than likely in this particular season, if you finish fourth. That means you're ahead of Arsenal. And I would think that for Spurs fans, the symbolic element of finishing ahead of Arsenal may even be more, worth more than a trophy. So, And you don't necessarily have to focus on two different fronts in order to do that. Because, look, you, you're going to want to get as many points as you can in the league regardless. You're also going to go for the for the, for the, the UEFA, UEFA, Europa League trophy. That means, that means fighting on both fronts. With everything you've got, ah, uh, you know uh, you're focusing on one one area. If you're if you're if you're not necessarily not it's not that you don't want to win the Europa League, but maybe you're not putting as much into it as you would otherwise. Correct. Uh, I think uh, winning breeds winning. This so is true. Being this is able true. to yeah, we don't we don't want to focus on one thing. If you want to be a Champions League team and finish fourth every year and forget about the European Cup, you're still. What are you? What are you building towards? You know, finishing fourth doesn't build your team and your players to understand what it's like to play a midweek okay, European. But Shay, but it's the Champions League, and we know the Champions League is orders of magnitude bigger, more important, and richer than anything the Europa League will bring you. Oh, correct. So, but if we win it, then we get automatic. No, I, I realize that. I, and I, what I'm, <laughs> but what I'm saying is, okay, what I'm saying, you're dealing with knockout football, which is the 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 uh, the margin for error is much smaller in knockout football than it's going to be to go win fourth in the Premier League. I mean, I know, look, mm-hmm. I know it's very tight up there, and I know, look, you got Arsenal and you got City and you got United and you got, uh, you know, uh, whoever else is going to climb up there. Liverpool doesn't look like they're in for it this year, but if you're going <laughs> to be taking that next step, I'm actually only playing devil's advocate. I think Europa League is the way to go. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I feel the same way. I just, I don't understand why anyone, you know, Say next year, hypothetically, UEFA goes. All right, the English teams do really well in this competition. Uh, let's just let's up it to six places. Well, that's you know, not going to happen. Six places. That's not going to happen. So, yeah, of course not. This is hypothetical. But what I'm saying is, fourth sure. is arbitrary. Just the same. Uh, as you've six. got a good point. You've got a good point. Thanks for the phone call, so, Shane. I appreciate it, man. You, okay. Go, well, you've got Great. one more point. I'll let you finish. You got one more point. No, no, that was pretty much it. All I just right. I want to win a trophy. I that, don't care if it's I, UEFA Cup or I, not. I think that's the best way to go. Thanks for the call, man. I appreciate it. Uh, let's see. Who All we, right. Thanks, Jason. Okay. Bye. Uh, who do we have on the line with me now? Uh, this is Michael from Orlando. Hey, what's going on, Michael? Hey, I'm going to talk a couple things about, like, CBA and uh, I guess specifically in Orlando. I know, like, if the players strike, everyone stands to lose, but when you think by by far, like Orlando City right now stands to lose probably the most uh, out of the MLS clubs. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, I think we've passed now forty five thousand tickets, and coming up on fifty probably by the weekend. No, I've, I've been I've been told that a lot of that is um, that those tickets have been handed out that they're papering the the room. Is that is that true? Or do you believe that? Or these are, are they actually sold tickets? Well, um. Like I work for a local soccer store, and we bought like a thousand tickets to do a promo to help sell the stadium. So I know, for example, like those tickets 
would be considered sold. Sure. And as long as we sell ours that we did through this deal, you know, eventually those will be considered sold out. So that's true. I mean, some of them have already been sort of like claimed for different events. Like they've got some event where, you know, if you go to this party, you'll get a ticket. Yeah, well, so I mean, I, the issue there, for the issue, Michael, is whether or not those people will actually show up. I mean, you hope they do. But let's, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to take anything away from Orlando. And you're absolutely right. Thanks for the comment. You're absolutely right. People, uh, Orlando City Soccer Club stands to lose the most in terms of buzz and momentum if there is a strike. Uh, Bill in Rockland County, what's going on? Jason, how's it going? I've been trying to call since Friday, so I have a bunch of things to throw oh, at Oh, crap. You got a list? Man, I'm not sure I can do it. Okay, all right. I will. You know I will, Bill. Go ahead. The first one is, and I just, it was good I'm following this guy talking about the strike with the CBA. If they do go on strike, what happens with the USL? With all these second teams that are affiliated with the MLS team? Well, you know, there, there, are, there are two different ways that these players are, are are sent over to the USL team. Some of them have USL contracts. Uh, a couple of the kids in LA just signed USL contracts. A lot of these guys have USL contracts. I, I don't know how it works. If the guy's on an MLS contract, I'm guessing he'd be part of the strike and he wouldn't be playing for that USL pro t- or USL team. Um, obviously, the rest of those USL teams can still go on. I, it's a good question. I, I don't know. I imagine that 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 I. I I would guess that USL would prefer that the MLS operators of these clubs have enough players to go play games should an MLS strike happen. Yeah, because I know now with Red Bulls 2, they're going to play at Red Bull Arena, and their home opener is on March 28th. And right now, I'm kind of I'm really looking forward to that game. Yeah, And I'm wondering if this is the kind of thing that could backfire a little bit, because... All right, you know, I don't have the uh, MLS team, but I have the USL team. I can watch them for a month or two, and whenever they get to the sports, they get it worked out. <laughs> yeah, I, Bill, I'm going to let you go because i got some issues here with my phone line. I, actually, I know you got a list of stuff. Let me get to Henrik real quick. Henrik, what's going on? Well, I was wondering, uh, the Danish national team might have a player strike on his hands because uh, – so I was wondering what you think um, – like the U.S. Federation should do with yeah. the friendly in case the players turn out striking. Yeah, Henrik, you told me about this on Twitter, and I haven't I haven't had really had a chance to look into it. Um, I, it's a good question. Um, you know, the United States has had this issue in the past, and, and you know, obviously various federations go through it on occasion where uh, the, the national team players don't feel like they're getting enough for their effort, um, and they go on strike. If the United States is going up against a a scab laden Denmark team. I'm not sure it's worth it, uh, but I'm, I imagine they would still play the game. Yeah, because like the issue is also like it's not even just the pay; it's also that right now the the federation negotiates with the the players' union, and now the the federation is trying to circumvent and just negotiate uh, directly with the players and like to break the unity. So a lot of the players. Uh, are also pretty unhappy with that, so it could really risk, uh, like, it, because it could just be that a few players say no, and then it's still a pretty full team, but the players seems to be quite unified, so you'd end up having a team without all the big stars and without even the B or C line. Yeah, like, if, you, if, that, get down if, if that's the case, the I, again, I don't know, if it, is it worth it for... Is it worth it for U.S. soccer to follow through? But then they have a contract with the Federation. So, 
how do you can you can you break that contract because of the player strike? I think I think it may be and it may be just the easiest thing to do is to play the game, it, despite the fact you may not be getting their full their full team. And look, this game is what a month away, a month and a half away. Do you think, or a month and a week away? Do you think that that it's still going to be going on come the end of March? Well, the the federation set a deadline for March second for the players to to notify if they're willing to to play uh, regardless of uh, like to break lines. So it's right. really just like a week and a half until okay. the, the showdown. Yeah. Well, that to be definitely bears watching again. I mean, it's more about Denmark and their players and their federation and the relationship than it is about the United States. But clearly the U S has an interest if they have a scheduled friendly for March 25th. Thanks for the call, Henrik. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Daniel Atlanta. What's going on, man? Hey, good morning, Jason. How's it going? Oh, yeah, it's uh, it's great. I'm it's fantastic. What's up? Hey, not much, man. I just want to touch on on on, on CBA right quick. All right. Um, um, <clears throat> sorry, my throat hurts. Uh, why? How? Why is it so difficult for 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 them to come come to terms for free agency? Why can't they just have a free agency like the NBA or the NFL has? Because MLS operates in a different manner, and the the owners are um, very very married to their concept of of how to run the league. And if they open up the Pandora's box of free agency, my my belief is they think that that's going to ultimately fundamentally change the way that their business operates. And they don't have they don't have um, you know they they don't have books that indicate what the league is going to look like if, if everything's broken up in terms of single entity and, and free agency. They have books. They have future projections that are based on single entity and controlled costs and, and no competition between teams for players on the, in the internal market. So I think we just have a fundamental difference of philosophy here that, that right now looks very much like the, like the players are going to lose out because while the players have the fan support for the most part, the owners don't they don't they're not they're not going to be overly hurt by a strike. I, I think that the I think ultimately, and you'll see this opinion from Steve Davis at World Soccer Talk right now, go find that piece. While he may be on the side of the players in terms of right and wrong, he ultimately believes that the owners will break the players again because they have the power. Uh, that's I mean, that's unfortunate from from I know the owners, they don't want to lose money. And for them to avoid free agency would be a, a wonder for them. So, you know, like you say, they don't have to compete and bid for the highest, for the best player. But, I mean, I, well, I love MLS, but I just, I want it to be resolved. I, and, no, I, I agree. And look, and I, I want free agency because I actually, ultimately, I think that's best for the players. And I think happy players make for a better league. And, and and one day MLS owners are going to have to open up the purse strings and say, okay, fine. We may not be able to compete with the Premier League. We may not even be able to compete with Liga MX, but we're going to have to do something here. We're going to have to take a step forward. And to me, this seems like they have they they've got a very antiquated way of doing business. And and why not get the ball rolling in the right direction? But at the same time, when we call, when we talk about the nuts and bolts and the details of this, and again, this is from Steve Davis's piece at World Soccer Talk that you should be reading. He outlines how MLS can say, "Well, look, we're not." 
we're not restricting trade here. We're not keeping these players from having options because there are other leagues in other countries, either even other leagues in this country, that give them the opportunity to go sign where they want. If a player says, you know, I don't, I, you know, I want to be able to, to to choose the city I live in to play. MLS can say, well, there's other teams in these cities. Go go play in, you know, go play for the New York Cosmos if you don't like. Um, you know, if you want to play in New York and the Red and, and the Red Bulls can't bid on you even if they want to. I don't know. I mean, again, there, there's there's sort of a right and wrong element to it. There's a legal element to it. There's a what's best for the future of MLS, which is a very subjective question. All of this stuff is at play right now, and it's uh, it, I don't know. It's it sucks. It just sucks, Daniel. It's it definitely sucks. I I just want to ask one like future question. One future uh, question. All mind. right. All right. <laughs> How far away is MLS from signing like that big young star? You know what I'm saying? Like 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 an Ed Hazard from the world or something like that. How far away do you think MLS is from doing that? A long, long, long time from now. Because I look, I don't think MLS is going to be signing twenty three, twenty two, twenty three year old stars. Or twenty-four-year-old stars, or twenty-five years. I mean, Giovinco's what? He just turned twenty-eight or twenty-nine. That's about the best you're going to do for now. What MLS need? The only way MLS gets those stars is by growing those stars, by finding a way to get those kids in here when they're fourteen or sixteen or eighteen, even. So maybe MLS, because hey, the the checks don't bounce, the 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 quality of living is good. You can go to college at the same time. Maybe they get a kid to come up here from Argentina at fourteen or something like that, and then somehow he becomes a star. MLS is going to have to spit these these stars out, not bring them in. Yeah, exactly. Um, don't know, don't know. Honestly, honestly, like the youngest players are, are the future players, and as long as we can develop those players, then. You know, MLS is a growing league. Yeah, you're right. You got it. And, yeah, there you uh, go. Well, thanks, Jason, and Appreciate I'll talk it. to you soon. And, and congrats on the World Soccer Talk. Appreciate thanks. it, Daniel. Thanks a lot, man. Daniel in Atlanta joining in. And I feel bad because I, I went to Henrik about Denmark's stri- player strike for the national team, and I completely wrecked Bill's list of, of topics. Bill in Rockland County, my, my immense apologies for not getting to your list of topics. Uh, maybe you can call back to – maybe we could do one thing on your list every single day. So tomorrow – Friday show when who knows what what kind of guests we'll have we may have a, a couple of people on the line I hope we get some some good guests we don't have anybody lined up at the moment I don't think Friday tends to be a bit of a free-for-all maybe Bill can get in oh look at this Washington's on the air what's up Washington hey what's up Jason long time hey, yeah it's been a while it's been a while yeah, what's going yeah, on? Yeah, I lost you for a minute but I'm glad you're back on what's going on listen I just wanted to address something you just said that kind of rub me the wrong way about uh, the MLS having to bring in kids. You said something, I mean, you used an example about bringing a 14-year-old in from Argentina and developing them that way, right? Why not bring a 14-year-old from Nebraska? Yeah, no, absolutely. Or a 14-year-old from Look, California. Absolutely, Washington. You're 100% right. And when I said it, what I, what I meant was the way that, that Daniel posed that question, he seemed to indicate where he was talking about foreign stars. He was talking about a foreign kid who may be eligible for somebody else's national team. That's the only reason I said Argentina. Yeah, I want it, and, I want MLS. My, my, my point to that is I don't think I think a lot of people view success as when we have European and and international stars coming to MLS. I don't see that as MLS being successful because the NBA doesn't get European. I mean, that doesn't try to recruit European stars. We have our own. Same thing with the NFL and Major League Baseball. I think success is when MLS 
breeds American players, and we're the top league in the world, and we're where people yeah, want to okay. come play. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, you know and, I mean? there's a long and and again, this is the the internal struggle of what MLS wants to be, how it wants to get there. You have a league that wants to sign Steven Gerrard, that wants to sign Frank Lampard, that wants to sign David Villa and Kaká, and that's fantastic. That's great. Those guys are are names that bring attention to the league, but it's also a league that wants to start academies and turn kids into quality players, hopefully superstars. MLS, to me, MLS is successful when we're not talking about you know 24-year-old, 23-year-old Breck Shea going to Stoke for $3 million. We're exactly. talking about We're talking about an 18-year-old who's being eyed by Chelsea. And even if the money is not huge, we're talking about younger and younger players who are, and again, I, I I'm a little uncomfortable sometimes with the uh, with the element of young players and and how much they're exploited, but in, if you, if you're talking about MLS and its growth, what you want MLS to do is to create academy systems, and it's not going to be every club because not every club in every league is successful, but right. enough enough that you have sort of this this constant discussion about whether or not a player is going to go and join a Chelsea or a, a Liverpool or a Manchester United or a La Liga team or whatever. Or if he's going to stay here and sign and play for you know the Chicago Fire because he's from you know he's from Gary or something. I mean, whatever it is, that's mm-hmm. what you that's what you want. Exactly, exactly. I'm with you. Hey man, it's good to see you back on. Right. Appreciate Take it, care. Washington. Good call. Long time, but uh, since we heard from Washington on Soccer Morning. All right, that's going to do it. Thank you very much to David Cartledge. Excellent stuff on Spain and James Montague. I mean. I don't know. I feel like when James Montague comes on the show, I, I feel like every single word I utter, every breath I I use to speak is is wasted time for James to talk. And I enjoy having James on the show. It's great to have him back. Make sure you're following both of those guys. David J A C A is David Cartledge. James Peter James P I O T R is James Montague. All right, that's it. Go get a, a mug at uh, backheel.com/store. Free shipping extended through today. Worldwide free shipping. Use the uh, use the code MUG, all caps, because I've seen some problems with this. I'm guessing all caps is important. M U G. Get a free get a get free shipping on your soccer morning mug, and trust me, that's a good discount because shipping can cost a bit. I got my soccer morning mug somewhere. I lost it. No, it's here. I got it. Anywhere on the earth. That's right. Go get a T-shirt at soccer at uh, sorry three nail fc dot com. Where you get a soccer morning t-shirt. The back heel t-shirts are like this one, which I got here. This is my my uh, Chuck Blazer CONCACAF ball-in t-shirt. Go get one of those as well. All right, that's going to do it. Tomorrow's Friday. We'll be back here. World Soccer Talk. It's going to be a good time. Looking forward to it. Trevor will come up with something. All right, guys. We'll talk to you then. Bye.